When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. How can we be sure that 2 plus 3 equals 5? Most of us, I'm betting, have never really thought much about that sort of question, which at first glance seems far too trivial to spend any significant time ruminating over. After all, 2 plus 3 equals 5 is obviously, overwhelmingly, self-evidently true. It is, in fact, quite frankly impossible to even imagine a scenario where it isn't true. But then, that's interesting in its own right, because we have no problem imagining other possible worlds, worlds where gravity doesn't apply, or where rocks are alive, or where the media actually engages in responsible, well-balanced reporting. But mathematics is somehow different. Why is that, you might find yourself pondering? And what does it really mean? Well, as University of Toronto philosopher of science James Robert Brown will tell you, it turns out to mean quite a lot. I would like to talk uh, about this idea of of Platonism and what mathematical Platonism is. Or I shouldn't even say mathematical Platonism, I should just say Platonism because there are other aspects to it that you may Um, very much want to get into. And um, as I was saying to you earlier, sometimes when I I talk to people and I say there's this really cool thing, there's there's this aspect of of whether mathematics really exists and and if so, where it exists and how we might have access to it. And and I use the word philosophy or I use the word Platonism. People, uh, often very educated, reasonable, curious people will recoil in, in horror and, or their eyes will mist over or perhaps both and they will run as, as far away from me and as quickly as they possibly can. Now, one might say that this is a fairly common reaction for all sorts of things that I say, but, uh, but I think the interesting thing is, is that is that this is a, uh, an issue, this is a concept, this is an idea that anybody could have a clear grasp of, could have a clear understanding of, uh, just after a few moments of reflection. So mm. I'm going to start off by asking you what Platonism is. What, uh, what is it? And then we'll talk about a little bit about the history and about the different interpretations and so forth before we move into your particular aspect to it. But first, let's, let's just start with what is Platonism? What are we talking about here? Anyway? Okay. Well, maybe the, the, the easiest way to just get an entry into contemporary Platonism, never mind the actual Plato, just what we call Platonism today, is just take simple things in mathematics. So think of all of the mathematical things that you already believe. 2 plus 3 equals 5, 
and, and that there are an infinitude of numbers, that there are an infinitude of prime numbers, for instance, <coughs> and so on. And then ask yourself the following question. Are all those facts, those mathematical facts, are they like physics? When I say protons are heavier than electrons, I'm probably, I, I hope I'm saying something true about the world right. that's independent of me, it's there, physicists have discovered this. Is math like that, or is it more like this? Bishops move diagonally in the game of chess. That's also true, but it's something that we've obviously created. Because right. we so, could have had bishops move in any sort of d different direction we wanted to have. That's right. right. And um, so, the, so the first question is, uh, you know, which side are you on on that question? Now, some people opt for the game. <clears throat> they think, oh, it's an awful lot like a game, and that'll give you certainty in mathematics. I mean, it's, it's certain that bishops move diagonally be simply because we have agreed. Sure, by definition. Yeah, by definition. On the other hand, um, if you think that mathematics is somehow or other there, waiting, and mathematicians actually make discoveries, uh, just the way physicists make discoveries about the world, then you're on the Platonistic side of things here. Mathematics has a kind of independent existence from us. Right. Another way of putting it is, um, if you thought no conscious beings existed anywhere in the universe, would it still be true that there are infinitely many prime numbers? Right, or two plus three equals five, or, or, any or, or any, anything at all. Right. Clearly, if there were no intelligent beings, bishops wouldn't move diagonally. Sure, There'd just be no fact of the matter about it at all. It wouldn't right. have been created. Right. In fact, there are all sorts of games that haven't <coughs> been created that, that exist potentially out there. There's oh, chess, that's there's interesting chess too. prime, there's, there's anything like that. Yeah. But we wouldn't, at least those people of a Platonistic persuasion, would certainly not believe that, there, that 2 plus 3 uh, equals 5 is, is one of a possible number of, uh, of combinations that in no. some ways 2 plus 3 could have equal 6 no. or could have equal 17 or That's could right. have equal anything like that. There's, That's right. There's something really... There are basic facts out there waiting for us to discover. Right. Uh, we think we're getting it all right and we're probably more confident than the physicists are in their discoveries, but we even acknowledge that you know, we could be making mistakes and we might have to back up and, and then start from an earlier point and right. develop mathematics from there. But it is a bunch of discoveries. But of course the whole issue is if you're, most people I think have no, no difficulty in accepting the fact that we're making a discovery about the physical world. If I drop this cup and this cup moves at a certain rate, I can, I can build a theory to explain why that cup is moving at a certain rate and mm. what might happen if I would drop a similar cup or a different cup. And I, because we all believe that these cups are out there <clears> and they're all part of, the, they're, they're part of the world. And we can, maybe if we're really clever, we can link up how this cup is moving with how the planets are moving and how other things are moving and we can build bigger theories. And it's all about a framework that we're establishing about the things that actually exist. But when we talk about 2 plus 3 equals 5, and when, when we talk about uh, how many prime numbers there are, whether there's an infinity of, uh, infinitude of prime numbers and so forth, um, this begs the question, well, this there that we're talking about, that's out there, these things that we are discovering, where are they? What is there? What, they're not in the physical world, clearly, so, so, so what's, where are they? This is the embarrassing question for many of us. So clearly they're not in the physical world, as you say. Um, they're not to be found. The number two isn't to be found anywhere in the world the way the, the meter stick is to be found in Paris under glass where we can go and actually examine it. <laughs> if they'll let us, we could hold it. We could check other meter sticks to make sure they're the right length and stuff like that. Right. No, numbers aren't like that. So the, the, the big question is how do, we, how do we 
get to know anything about them? How do we grasp them, right. as it were? How do we see these truths? Well, we can't literally grasp. We can't literally see. I can only use metaphors at this point. But there seems to be some kind of cognitive capacity that human beings actually have, that they're able to understand these things and uh, come to believe them rationally. Right. I don't know how it's done. It is a mystery. It's an embarrassment, and frankly. And in fact, for people who don't like Platonism, it's the number one issue uh, in which you, uh, you'll hammer a Platonist. You, you, you just say, well, how the hell do you do this? Right. How can what you, you get access to this, this, this world that's yeah. outside of space and time? Yeah, how, exactly. How, 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 how so I, here's, a, here's a cup here on the table, right. and I, I know that the cup is on the table because photons are coming from the cup and from the table. Right. I can see them, they interact with me, and that has a lot to do with my knowledge. In fact, if photons weren't coming, I'd be hard-pressed to, to actually know anything about it. Right. So there doesn't seem to be anything like this. Wouldn't it be nice if there were little platons coming from Plato's heaven <laughs> down into our, and into the mind's eye, as it were, right. uh, in which we could grasp uh, uh, see right. these uh, mathematical truths. But unfortunately, that seems a little preposterous. So, so me, right now, we just don't know. We don't know. Let me, let me ask you just to back up a little bit for a more historical context. So, uh, so maybe I'm not a student of philosophy, but I'm sitting somewhere and I say, okay, Platonism, that obviously has to do with Plato. The Platons that you're referring to have to do with Plato. So historically, how did, why is it called Platonism? <coughs> how, did, how, did that come, how did that come to pass? Yeah, well, Plato's from uh, uh, roughly 400 uh, before the current era. So let's say two and a half thousand years ago. Right. Uh, for me, he's, he's the greatest of them all. Uh, he's my hero. Really? He's your hero? Because he, he's got this socialist thing going. He's an elitist. I mean, how do you jar... Well, he's sort of uh, an elitist, but he was a kind of an important egalitarian and, and with qualifications, an important feminist in his day, because sure. he thought philosopher sure, kings, sure. there's no difference between men and women when it came to rulers. Philosopher, sure. philosopher kings could be females. Sure. But there was a certain uh, anyway. I, uh, I, 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 we're we're in ancient Greece, <laughs> and there's no question women are, are playing a secondary role. Sure. No. I, I the whole yeah. feminist thing. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm with you. It, it was it was this idea that I because I know you have these these these, these very strong yeah, yeah. You know, socialistic strains yeah. to you. And it's, there. So it's, part, it's yet another part of your charming <laughs> char charming character. Able to maintain absurdities <laughs> with a smile. <laughs> anyway, so I interrupted. So, so we go back to Plato. Forget about mm -hmm. uh, other aspects of Platonic philosophy. Uh, yeah. so, so we well, go well I mean, Plato. the historical Plato is really interesting. And right. so why do we call our current view Platonism? Well, Plato, for Plato, the number one issue is he, he thought there were abstract entities. So there's a lot of chairs around the room. Uh, what do they all have in common? Well, they're all examples of chairs. They have, it sounds like a silly word, they have chairness sure. in common. Right. And so he's thinking that there's a kind of form, a perfect chair or maybe a blueprint of a chair or something like that that has a, a, some kind of existence in its own right. And then the actual chairs in the room are copies or instances of the form. Um, and this is, this is the centerpiece of Platonism. And this is the piece that we keep today. There are other things that go along with, Plato, with Plato's actual views that, that are just preposterous. We wouldn't believe today. So, for instance, um, he thought that the way uh, nobody learns mathematics or anything else, what they do is remember mathematics. 
And it turns out for Plato, we're immortal and our souls used to exist in this thing that we call Plato's heaven. And they gazed upon the perfect circle, the perfect triangle and so on. They knew it all from direct experience there. Uh, and in the act of being born, your poor brain gets <laughs> jostled around right. and you forget everything. Right. And then what happens in education is we draw it out. Socratic education is the process of helping you to remember. Right, especially mathematically. So there's this wonderful scene yeah. in the Mino, of course. Uh, That's right, the Mino's the, 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 the classic example right. where the slave boy produces a proof and he's right. never been taught any, any mathematics at all. Right. And so this is supposed to be evidence that he actually already knew and he knew it from his life before birth. Right. Now no one, no, one, no one sensible today believes in reincarnation and so on. So we can't have that view. We have to have some other Right. kind of uh, epistemology theory about how we learn mathematics to go along with the stuff about abstract entities. So modern Platonist is only saying the abstract entities, that's the part Plato got right, and that's why we call it Platonism. Right. And the abstract, as you said, they were, for, for Plato there were not only mathematical entities, there was, this, there was the, the, the idea of a chair which might, uh, chairness or the perfect yeah. chair which might strike people as, uh, as, as silly. Uh, or the idea of the perfect cat, and uh, you have yeah. a cat quality. But, but there are things that are, are more understandable, I would say, at least to me, something like beauty and something like That's truth. right. And so, so there's, there's and a whole hierarchy of, of stuff. All, all, of, all of this stuff is out. That's right. But, but in contemporary Platonism, uh, one is only looking at, at the, the mathematical aspects of, of, of this. Or yeah, maybe, yeah. For, maybe, for me too. Right. There, there's some people in ethics, um, it's not been popular for a while, but I think it's making a slight comeback. Oh, really? Yeah, so they're, now they're not going to go uh, whole hog on Platonism and, and the same things. They're not going to believe that you're, you're remembering what's good sure, sure. and so on. But there is a, they, they do think you, maybe you have a kind of intellectual grasp of, of good and bad. That, that the wonderful thing about it, the thing that appeals to me about moral Platonism, is that you've got moral objectivity. Right. Okay, you got no kind of relativity. There's a, there's a, there's a genuine objective right and wrong. It really about is every good action. and bad. And it really is good and bad. Um, it's hard to figure it out. You know, it might be really hard to figure it out. We right. might not know what's good and bad any more than we know all the mathematical truths. We're just slowly discovering things. Right. Um, but on the other hand, there's no God involved here. God plays no role whatsoever. You have perfectly objective ethics, but it's just these no forms, forms that are out there. Right. Okay. Yeah. So let's get back to mathematics. And, and before somebody might say, uh, well, that's just silly, or how can it be that way because we can't have access to them? Uh, I think an, an interesting uh, way to approach this is one of the ways that you approach it in some of your books where you say uh, quite openly and honestly, characteristically, that you are shamelessly appealing to authority. So you rattle off some of the greatest minds in the history of mathematics and thought uh, certainly including, but by no means limited to Plato, who actually were Platonists and, 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 and yeah. believed that. So maybe you can give me a few examples of some famous Platonists before we, before we reject them out of hand, before we reject them <laughs> Of course we won't, because by the end of this emission, everybody who's watching this will be, will be a, a thorough going. Completely won over. Yes, absolutely. Yes, right. Um, well, mathematicians and philosophers will recognize some of the names. So for instance, Frege, was a German uh, logician philosopher in the uh, late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. He was a fabulously brilliant fellow, and he was a thoroughgoing Platonist. Um, a great British mathematician by the name of uh, Hardy 
early in the 20th century, was a Platonist. And he had nice imagery. So he'd talk about uh, how he did mathematics. Mostly he said it's, a, it's really, proofs don't mean anything. He said proofs are just, I think he used the word gas. They're just rhetorical flourishes that's just showing off. The real facts are um, like this. It's as if I can see a distant mountain range and uh, I see a peak and I've seen a couple more peaks and I say I want you to look over here you see this peak that you already know of now look a little bit to the right and just behind you see that thing there and I can point out something new to you that you've never seen before and you say oh yeah now I get it and this is this is mathematics you have a kind of perception I mean a li almost literal perception sure. of these mathematical truths which exist out there independently from you now I might to help you see I might actually give you a proof in fact, journals tend to demand them. <laughs> they don't like this. Look at the second peak right. on the right. <laughs> but, 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 at some, but at some fundamental level, according to Hardy, it's superfluous because, because that's, right. that's just a way of dressing up what, what you've intuited in some, in that's some right. deep way. Intuition, a kind of perception right. of these abstract entities is, is what's really going on. And, and those mountain peaks, speaking metaphorically, they're there. They're just waiting there for you to discover. Right. That's right. Wonderful picture. Now, of course, the, the, the name that most people will recognize, even on the street, will recognize is Gödel, yeah. the famous Austrian um, uh, logician. Uh, Gödel was a flat-out Platonist, and he talked about the only way he could make sense of mathematics was to, to imagine that there's a kind of intuition, a kind of perception of mathematical objects. And he said, you can't make sense of mathematics without this form of perception any more than you can make sense of our physical knowledge without the fact that we've got eyesight and we can perform experiments and observe things. Right. Perfect analogy, he thought. And, yeah. and, and uh, a great living mathematical physicist uh, who, who's also an, an unabashed Platonist is Roger Penrose. Roger Penrose, right. And he's, uh, he likes Gödel uh, very much on this, uh, on this question, takes the same sort of view. Right. I think he cites Gödel uh, at, at length um, yeah, in this approving way. Yeah, I'm on the, we're all on the same side, <laughs> doing <laughs> battle against the Philistines. <laughs> okay, so, so well done. You've established the, the authoritative team that, uh, <laughs> that you're a member of. Um, and I, I, I want to move to some of your uh, particular arguments and your particular views uh, on Platonism because you have some unique takes uh, on things that I think are, are very worthy of discussion. But before I do, I'd like you to play devil's advocate a little bit. You did it, you did it before uh, in terms of how do we possibly have access to this hidden world. If I'm mm. somebody who, who, who discovers a theory, mm. a new mathematical truth, and I say, aha, I've discovered this new mathematical truth, then the skeptical non-Platonist would say, oh, that's just silly. You can't discover this new mathematical truth. How could you possibly, this, this idea, this construct, which is outside of space and time, that you're hardy, you're pointing to it, or you're girdle, and you're waving your arms around or whatever, there's no possible way you can have interaction between these things, uh, between yourself and something that's outside of space and time. So that's one negative thing. What are some of the other... Uh, things that, 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 that people say who are not, not Platonists. That's probably, that's probably the big one. That's probably the big one. Yeah. Um, I think that often you, you find um, philosophical attitudes inside philosophy. You get a kind of general attitude. And one that's very common today is called naturalism. Mm -hmm. 
So what a naturalist says, uh, first and foremost, is that the natural sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, they're a success story, no question. Right. And, the, and then they'll say something like, um, they are giving us knowledge, nothing else can. There's no other avenue to learn anything about reality except through the natural sciences. So, I mean, historically, the alternatives have been things like the Bible. You, right. read, you, you learn about reality by reading what, what it says in Genesis, right. for instance. Okay, so that, that's not on. Um, nor is reading tea leaves, nor, and so on. You go through the whole shebang. But nor would mathematics, presumably. Well, then this, this makes mathematics a real problem. Um, so, they, so naturalists then say, okay, what we have to do to maintain our naturalism is to give an account for all these things that where, where we like to claim we, ha we know something, but it doesn't fit into the physics, chemistry, biology way of doing things. So that includes mathematics, also includes morality, uh, philosophical knowledge generally, right. you know, a whole lot of stuff. Right. And um, so they have to give some account. And so the, they'll be desperate to, um, to do something, to give some sort of account of how, how we might have mathematical knowledge that doesn't appeal to this wild, as they see it, wild Platonistic stuff. So wouldn't it be nice if we could have an account? So here they'll, they'll try to do the following. Uh, almost none of them are successful. So John Stuart Mill in the 19th century, though he wouldn't have called himself a naturalist, but maybe an updated version of right. Mill. It's just empiricism. You just look. You count a few apples. You've got two apples here. You've got three apples here. Push them together. You've got five apples. And that all of our mathematical knowledge is built up in this kind of straightforward, empiricist way. And mathematical facts, like 2 plus 3 equals 5, are actually not truths, are not abstract truths, but they're in fact truths about the world. It just means any two objects and three objects make five objects, material objects. Which in some ways means that it's at least logically possible to be in the world, or be in some other world, or be somewhere, and, and have two objects and three objects, and combine them together and get six of them. That's right. Even Mill would concede that. Uh, that looks to me like a reductio ad absurdum of his view, but he's willing to, you know, bite right. the bullet, as it were. Right. Now, the trouble is, even if you can make that work for very low-level arithmetic, of small numbers. Yeah, which I'm not convinced by because it seems like it no. doesn't work. Even, no, no I don't said, think it works. For two and three. So. Yeah, in fact, you run into problems as soon as you start talking about negative numbers or complex numbers or something like that because they're not going to be like, sure. like three apples minus five apples equals minus two apples. And all right, Mill, show us the minus five apples <laughs> and we'll see what we can do about operating with it. You run into these problems almost immediately. Right. Um, another view. I, that's quite popular is to is to somehow turn it into some kind of evolution the result of evolution hmm. so it's there's no nothing deeply objective about arithmetic it's just that people who think the way we think have tended to have children who survived people who thought in a kind of different way uh, tended not to. And so, it, and so it, mathematics is, is actually a, somehow attributable to us. So mathematics is just a repre representation of the way we think. This is the that's argument. right. It's just an expression of, of how we think, and it has had it's been adaptive. I mean, we've, you know, I mean, your ancestors, who said, um, um, uh, my three friends and I can beat up those two guys, you know, because we outnumber them, uh, but then said, okay. Now there are 17 of those guys, and there's five of us. Oh, good. 
the odds are in our favor. <laughs> the thing is, they tended not to have many children. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore, only people who think like us, <laughs> only who do arithmetic like us, they're right. the ones who, who tended to survive and have children. And that's why we think the way we do today, and why things like 2 plus 2 equals 4 feel so certain. It's just, we're just hardwired that way. And this I, I, that's preposterous too. Sure. And, and you could imagine that, that I mean, so one counter-argument to this, so let me give you mine and then tell me yeah. if I'm right or if I'm wrong. So one counter-argument to this is, is this idea that if we were ever to find an alien life form somewhere, yeah. then they would use completely different, ma they wouldn't believe that three plus one necessarily equals four. There would yeah. be no, unless you had some super meta, you know, environmental survival hypothesis that would, that would. If that their would environment was truly weird, so that objects were tended not to be stable in the way they are here, then yeah, a different kind of arithmetic might, might suit them. It, well, you know, uh, uh, you know from elementary chemistry, if I take one liter of water and one liter of something else and mm. mix them together, I may not get two liters of liquid. Yeah. I may get 1.9 liters. I, I can't remember what yeah, I know. This is one of the reasons know the why things. I stopped doing chemistry. <laughs> <laughs> but if you lived in a world where mixing things like that was absolutely central to your, your existence, you might in fact have a kind of weirdo arithmetic. Sure, but at some level, uh, as we both, uh, I think, would agree, that may work in terms of mixing things together and, and, and doing some operational things, but it, it wouldn't enable you to, to, it clearly wouldn't enable you to build any consistent, reasonable no. ideas in higher mathematics. Uh, that's what I believe, yeah, and, I am with you. Yeah. And, and, uh, which really form the basis of, of all of our understanding of physical law. That's right. Uh, and and one right. could argue that's arbitrary or part of, part of our uh, genetic makeup, but yeah. I certainly wouldn't and, and, and neither yeah. would you. So anyway, so that, I asked you to play devil's advocate a little bit and give me some examples. Those are some. A couple of other things that I remember you mentioning in your, in your book, which is related, or to some of your books, I should say, because you've written more than one that, that refer to this idea. But there is this notion of the, the causal theory of knowledge that you, oh. you specifically highlight, which is related to what we said before about, at least I think, how you get access to these things. But there is this, uh, well, why don't you tell me about, yeah. about that? Because that, uh, that, that, as you said, is, a, is, is quite a formidable uh, yeah. criticism against, yeah. against Platonism. In a sense, I alluded to it earlier, but right. I, I can make it very Please. specific. Um, this was a very popular doctrine, you know, say, 10, 20, 30 years ago. It's, it's declining in its influence now, but it's still out there. Right. Okay, so the idea is this. In order for me to know about anything, I actually have to causally interact with it. So I, I know that, well, let me take a, a more complicated example than the cup that's on the table. Okay. Let's suppose I, I know it is snowing in Moscow right now, right this minute. Mm -hmm. How do I know that? It's a fair bet, by the way, but anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair bet. How do I know that? Well, I just looked at the weather report. And now that was photons coming off a printed page, or maybe a computer screen, you know, onto my eye. And, and it was reporting that. Well, how did it get onto the computer screen? Well, somebody at somewhere else was typing something, and an electronic signal came and made right. that image. And whoever typed it in got a message, perhaps from a phone call from some guy in Moscow, who looked out the window and felt snowflakes and saw snowflakes through photons and so on. And, 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 there's, and hence, there's this long chain from the actual snow of in direct Moscow. causal links. Direct causal links. Right. Maybe very complicated, right. but it's there. Right. And, and so, and second, 
if, if that chain had been broken and no other chain established, I simply couldn't know right. that it was there. Right. Yeah. So, that, so there's a lot of natural plausibility to the causal theory of knowledge. Right. Okay. Now, when you uh, accept this, then you say, well, okay, now you claim to know mathematical truths and that, and that these are mathematical facts about stuff in Plato's heaven. That's outside of space and time and you're inside. Tell me about the causal process that gets from there to here. You know, and, you, and you're immediately, oh, well, gosh, this is really an embarrassing question. Right. And I have no answer to it. Uh, and not directly. I have an indirect answer. I'm going to get to your indirect answer because I, I think it's, I think it's uh, particular. Well, do, do you have a, a more general indirect uh, answer or do you have the specific EPR indirect No, that's answer? the one. That's okay, the one. Okay, I want to get, I want to, get to that, but uh, very, very soon. I'll, Okay. I'll let, <laughs> I'll let you get there. Because um, I have one, one more uh, piece of criticism. Uh, yeah. uh, if I'm going to be the, the anti-Platonist, the devil's advocate that yeah. I want to say. So yeah. you say, okay, the big, the, the big arrow in my quiver is this notion of how do we get access to this world outside of, of space and time. And I can say it generally. I can say it more specifically using this causal theory of knowledge. But yeah. I mean, clearly it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue. Um, but then there may be another, uh, another piece of criticism that I might levy, and, and maybe it's because I'm, uh, I, I'm not interested in philosophy, or maybe it's because I have a different view, which is, well, who cares anyway? What, what, what difference does it make? Why should I even be worried about this? Isn't it all the same anyway? Maybe there are these forms that are out there. Maybe these forms aren't out there. Um, maybe we'll never be able to determine whether these, these things exist. But math is still math anyway, so what difference does it make? Why, why, should, I be, why should I be worried about that one way or the other? And, and, and in your book, you give, you give a, a, a very down-to-earth refutation of this that I, that I think is, uh, is interesting. So, so correct me if I'm wrong, but, or, or give, me, give me a sense as to as to whether or not I understand this. But, but you draw a parallel in the physical world, and you say, well, the, 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 the analogous question in the physical world is to say, well, maybe this, this tea doesn't, this, this, this mug doesn't actually exist, and I can pretend that this mug doesn't actually exist, but then I get in trouble right, right. if I try to yeah. Uh, yeah. Know, pour water in here, and everything goes, yeah. goes to everything goes to hell in a handbasket, right? I, I've, I've got a mess on my hand. I can't just pretend that. There's a real effect that's actually going on there. Yeah. Um, and the idea is that it's, it's not just that we are retrodicting afterwards and saying, oh, these forms are there. That's the wrong way of looking at the question. Yeah, we've got mathematics, and who knows whether these forms are there. The argument, the, the strict Platonist argument is the reason why we can intuit the fact that 2 plus 2 equals 4. The reason why we have that is because those forms are there. That's and right. if those forms were there, were not there, if, if in a strict Platonistic view, we didn't have all sorts of complicated mathematical uh, ideas and non, you know, basic yep. mathematical ideas, we wouldn't have those ideas ourselves. We wouldn't be able to have them, just like we wouldn't be able to see this cup if it weren't there. That's right. I think that's exactly right. Well, they're um, your words, so. <laughs> oh, well said. <laughs> well memorized. <laughs> um, there's a, a, an interesting old argument from uh, Bishop Barclay, and uh, it's, it's, it's sort of an analogous situation, and uh, uh, some people might actually find it, if they haven't studied Barclay already or heard about him, he, he's interesting in his own right. So Barclay thought, the, uh, uh, everything was just sensations in us. So you're a sensation in me, the, the table is a sensation in me, and so is the cup and all that. And the table is 
what we think of as the table is really nothing but a cluster of different sensations. So it's the sensation of hardness, right. the sensation of a spatial shape, the sensation of color. If I were to lick it, it would have some taste to it. And, there, and then he said, now, and, uh, okay, it, we're with him so far. But then he says something truly dramatic. He says, and that's it. There's nothing else. There's no table out there that actually has these properties and you're detecting them. All you've got are the cluster of sensations. Right. And now Bar Barclay believes in God and there's a sense in which God is necessary. He holds it all together. So when we leave the room, the table sort of stays because God wills it so. God's looking at it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but if God should just sort of nod off, <laughs> there it goes. <laughs> This is, this is sort of the famous, you know, if the, the tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it. Okay, Barclay's answer is, yeah, if nobody hears it, it's, it just doesn't make a sound. Yeah. The rest of us say, oh, sure it does, we just don't hear it. Mm. Um, now, common sense reply to Barclay is, well, you have to explain something. You have to explain why you think there's a table here, why you think there's a chair over there, why you think there's a cup here, and so do I. So how do we get this commonality? And the obvious easy answer is, there is. There really is a table there, <laughs> and it's causing your sensations and mine. Right. There really is a cup here, it's causing your sensations and mine, and so on. Now, when it comes to mathematical intuitions, think of it like a kind of perception. Yeah. The best explanation for the fact that our intuitions match, I mean really match, it's remarkable how stable mathematical intuitions are mm -hmm. over a long period of time. Over a wide, I'm sure, geographical yeah. area, all sorts of different people. That's right. Anthropologically That's right. It's, uh, distinct. It's culturally pretty stable from cultural to culture. It's pretty stable with us over a long period of time from person to person and, and all of that. And there's nothing else like it. I mean, sometimes people try to embarrass mathematical Platonists by saying, well, yeah, and so we're, uh, so are, so is seeing God, having a a religious experience and so on. But actually religious experiences are nowhere near as stable and as common from person to person to person. The way the feeling that um, 2 plus 3 equals 5 is just, mm. Mm. Yeah. you just can't shake it, right. you know? Right. And so how do you explain that? The best explanation seems to be the common right. thing that's independent from us and that you intuit and I intuit just like the common cup that you see and I see. Two plus three really does equal five, and really what we does. mean by really does equal five is somehow there's, just like that cup is there, it's there. It's somehow. there, it's part of reality yeah. in this larger sense. Yeah. It's not part of the physical reality, but it's part of reality. So one of, one of the things that, that has, one of the many things that has always impressed me about you, uh, but, 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 but very seriously, one of the things that, that I've taken great heart in, and I've been very impressed by, is the fact that you go into this very tricky thicket, um, and you go in in a very upfront, unabashed way. And there are, as you mentioned, there are other people, Roger Penrose has done this, Gödel has done this, so forth and so on. But you have the courage of your convictions to go into, into, into sometimes dodgy metaphysical waters. You said this before, that it's a real problem for us. How do we get access to this land and so this, this, this reality? And, and that makes a lot of people very uncomfortable. But you say up front, no, this is what I believe. This must be true. Uh, it's absurd to think anything other than this. And then you go try to develop arguments and build arguments. And I want to get to some of those arguments uh, very, very shortly. But I, I want to point out that, that 
for me, as I was uh, a student and uh, being exposed to people in different communities, mathematics and in physics and in philosophy and so forth, um, I, was, I was impressed by the fact that you, you really put it out there because the level of hypocrisy in the mathematical community had always struck me, that these were people who, who were what I always called Platonists by day and conjecturalists by, by night, or, or, mm. or, or, or they would be non-Platonists at least uh, by, by night. And what I meant by that is, in their day job, in their career, and what it is that they do, they believed almost to, to, a, to a person they believed quite strongly in this idea that they were making discoveries. Yeah, yeah. that's my job. I'm making a discovery. Yeah. I'm not just playing games. I'm not just moving symbols around. No, yeah. I'm really discovering something. Yeah. And they would be naturally and quite understandably very proud of that. I've discovered a theorem. Yeah. I found something. There's a whole, it's not just linguistically, it's, it's culturally, yeah. it's, it's the, the real deal. They believed very strongly, they believe very strongly that what they are doing and what the greatest ones are doing when they make a discovery is not dissimilar in kind at all to what a physicist is doing That's right. when, when she makes a discovery or, or what a chemist or a biologist or, or any, any one of the natural sciences makes. Yeah. And this, is, this, this, this gut feeling, this intuition, this belief is widespread and rampant and completely understandable within the mathematical community. And yet, if you go to a cocktail party and you talk to a mathematician and you say, well, are there really these mathematical objects that exist out there? Is it really true that, that, that that's what you're doing? Well, the hum and the ha, well, I don't really know, that's metaphysics. Leave that to the philosophers, I don't know. They'll scale things down because, they, of course, they recognize the, the, the conceptual difficulties, the metaphysical difficulties. They would have to then, then say as a logical consequence of this, oh, there's this world of reality that we don't have, how do we get access to it and all the rest of this. So they shy away from that. And, and that's always struck me as, as, as a bit weaselly, quite frankly. I mean, this, this is a weasel, they use these weasel words. And, and at the end of the day, if you're a mathematician, your job, your career, your life is to do mathematics. So, mm. so I think there's a certain ethical sense that if you're a mathematician <laughs> and you really are a player, I mean, if you don't believe that, if you really believe you're manipulating yeah. symbols all day yeah. long, fair enough, that's fine. Yeah. But if you, if you really are a Platonist, I think you should come out of the closet. Yeah. And I think you should, you should say to, to all and sundry at every conceivable opportunity that no, I'm, I'm a Platonist and maybe there are lots of things that I don't understand about this philosophy, but I, I really believe that this must be true. Anyway, you, you do this. No, well, I, I w that, that's a good answer. Um, on the other hand, let me, now I'm going to be devil's advocate. Again. Again. <laughs> okay. I could imagine somebody taking the following view. Okay, they could say, um, I find it extremely productive in my work to act like a Platonist, as if it's there and I'm discovering it. Now, the real truth, I'm not sure, but it's really good way to work. And then on, on, uh, uh, when, I'm, when I stand back and look at it, then I, then I have to express a bit of skepticism. Okay, here's an analogy. Um, if you're learning navigation, you're going to sail your boat around the world or something like that. Mm -hmm. This is prior to GPS. Sure. Do you know what uh, uh, people were taught uh, in order to navigate? Ptolemaic astronomy. Known to be false. But it, but it was useful. Exactly. So they'd say, okay, I know this isn't the way things really are, but in, it's incredibly good. It gets me from point A to point B and with the minimum of um, mistakes and uh, minimal calculations and so on. Now, you could say, 
Imagine now just something like that, mm. only we didn't know the truth about astronomy. And somebody said, well, I, I do it in this uh, Ptolemaic way, but I'm not confident that it's really true. But I find it very useful to act as if it were true when I'm navigating. What I really care about is the navigation. Okay, but Mr. Devil's Advocate, yes. uh, here's, here's my problem with this. Wasn't I generous to my you, enemies? You, you, you were very generous. Let me, let me take your straw Devil's Advocate man and try to blow him down. Yeah. So here's the problem with this, this whole thing. The problem is that there really is something worthwhile and meaningful to the idea of navigating from point A to point B. Yeah. So, so this is, is a means to an end. We, we will all agree that it's important and it's real and it exists and, and it's fundamental to get from point A to point B. And how yeah. we get there, we don't really care about. Yeah. But the, the analogy would be, well, <clears throat> then there really is something real and fundamental in getting and discovering a new theorem. But if you don't believe in Platonism, then there is, there, there is not necessarily anything real or fundamental because you're not discovering anything. You're just manipulating symbols around. Yeah. And if you were to ask a mathematician... Enlarging was, the fictions. Right. And if you, were a, if you were to ask a mathematician who was a Platonist by day and you were to say to him uh, or her, uh, you were to go up to the, this particular mathematician and, and say, uh, is, it, is, it, is it a reasonable thing to be just manipulating symbols all day according to one game of chess and somebody else could, could do it according to chess prime or chess double prime or have different rules? Then... Then that would then, according to these people, they would lose the motivation if they're really a Platonist by day. They would lose the motivation of that. I would. Maybe I'm not being very clear. No, no, no. I'll, you I'll, are. You're, you're perfectly clear. I understand. I understand it. Uh, but I suspect you and I see the world the same way, that we're interested in how things really are. Um, and if it turns out that there isn't a way things really are, that it, it's nothing but a body of fictions, and we can contribute to the body of fictions, which some people are very happy to do, um, but that you and I would say, no, I'm not interested in playing. No, because there's an infinite... I'll, I'll go and do something else. There are an infinite number of fictions. I'll just leave mathematics aside. I'll go and do physics, where I'm actually figuring out how the world works. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, now this is, something, this is something that I don't know what you can argue uh, over. It's more like a matter of taste. I mean, I admit, I like, there's a lot of fictions that I love, um, like literature. Sure. I don't expect my novels to be true. Yeah, but the, the author isn't pretending. Isn't even trying. Right. I know, and, I know. And, and that, that's, that's the game. That, anyway, uh, I've taken you too far uh, afield uh, because, uh, because I was, the, the real point that I was making was the fact that uh, I have great respect for the, uh, for the fact that, that you strongly adhere to your deep convictions fully aware of the fact uh, that there are serious metaphysical difficulties associated mm. with these convictions. Yeah. And then on top of that, you try to address them <clears throat> and you think about concrete ways rather than just avoiding them or saying that's, that's extremely difficult, you, you think about the ways by which those could be addressed. So the, the, the kicker, the real problem with Platonism as you've described, is this notion of how do we get access? Let's talk about this idea of intuiting these, these mathematical truths which are out there. And, and my sense is that, uh, from reading your books, that, that that was, I want to ask you more detail about this later, but there is this notion of, um, of trying to examine that in greater detail, and then which, which brings you to this world of thought experiments and brings you to this world, uh, at least for the reader, brings one to be confronted with this notion of possible ways by which we can at least shed some sort of light on this, this, this faculty of intuition, this, try to dig a little bit deeper into how we might be able to 
better characterize or better understand or better appreciate or better analyze yeah. this notion of intuition through thought experiments. So uh, that, that's my sense from reading your book, so, uh, or, or reading, uh, reading your book. So again, I'm talking too much, so I want you to be uh, giving me a sense of, of how you think thought experiments are useful for Platonism and maybe some very concrete examples of, of uh, what's going on. Right. Well, it's clear that in the history of physics, thought experiments have played an, you know, a huge role um, from ancient times up to yesterday. Uh, some of the most famous are at the time of the scientific revolution when you've got Galileo and Newton uh, performing thought experiments which are really central and revolutionary in many ways. And then of course uh, in relativity you've got Einstein's thought experiments involving the elevator and running after a beam of light. There's Heisenberg's gamma ray uh, thought experiment which gives you the famous uncertainty principle. There's Schrodinger's cat and they're just endless. Um, it's really an interesting question how, how they work also. You know, I mean the, the fundamental problem of thought experiments is, is simply this. How is it possible just by thinking that we can learn something new about the world. Now if you, if you have an ordinary view about how humans acquire knowledge, it's through the senses. Right. We have to go out and look if we're going to acquire something right. new. Right. And yet it seems that with thought experiments we can actually somehow or other get a, get a handle on something brand new that we've never, that we didn't know before and we have um, uh, we seem to have done it almost through magic. Right. So uh, if you want a simple example, I can probably describe a simple example. You can point to one, in fact. Okay. <laughs> um, well, let's, let me point to this one here. <laughs> uh, here's Galileo in a, thought, a famous thought experiment. So you imagine him at the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Historically, it's interesting whether he actually performed this or not. Right. Some historians say yes, others say no. Well, what's your, what's your view before we go on? Well, I, 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 my view would be amateurish because I hope not. I hope he never did. Really? Yeah. Why, why, do you, why do you hope? Then the thought experiment did it all. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, sorry. <laughs> There's, there are places in the text where he says, I don't need to do it because I know what's going right, to happen. Right, right, right. Which makes him sound like uh, he, he doesn't want to perform actual experiments. Okay. Anyway. So anyway, so, so here's the background. It's, uh, it's in Aristotle. It's also in common sense. Heavy things fall faster than light things. Mm. That matches our experience, right? right. Okay, so uh, you imagine yourself and I do mean imagine, okay? You're on top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and you're dropping little musket balls about this size and, and big cannonballs about this size. Right. Now Aristotle says heavy things are going to fall faster than light things. So if you drop them together, the cannonball will hit earlier. Right. Okay, let's, let's accept that as a principle. Heavy things fall faster than light things. Now let's paste the two things together. You've got a light musket ball and a heavy cannonball stuck together, maybe with a bit of chewing gum or something like that. Right. Did they have chewing gum back in those days? Yeah. <laughs> hey, well, you can do it. You can still do the I'm sure they experiment. had something sticky. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the sort of thing that you'd step on and curse. Right. Okay, just peel it off your shoe and, and stick these two things together. Right. And drop this thing. Now, now this is heavier than the heavy cannonball all by itself. Okay? So that means by the rule, it ought to fall faster than a cannonball all by itself. Sure, the combination is whatever, A plus B or whatever yeah. it is, so it's heavier. So it's heavier, it's got to fall faster. Now the trouble is, and this is sort of part of the background to both Aristotle and common sense, oh well, wait, 
the heavy cannonball wants to go really fast, but the light musket ball wants to go slower. So it's, it's acting like a little drag. Right. It's like a little mini parachute on the cannonball. It's going to slow it down. So that means that the combined object is going to fall slower than the heavy cannonball all by itself. Right. Now you've got an absurdity. Sure. You've got a contradiction. That's right. It's both faster and slower, uh, which is absurd. So, but the, so that's the end of Aristotle. Can't be right. But the, but the obvious solution to the problem is now just wants to speed. reach out and grab you by the throat. Right. Everything has to fall at exactly the same rate. Heavy, light, composite object, they all fall at exactly the same rate. Same rate of fall. That's a stupendous discovery by Galileo. And it's all done in his head. So as you pointed out, there are two things really that are going on. The, the first stage is you've reached a contradiction yeah. and you found that your old premises and your old way of thinking must be wrong. That's right. But there's, but there, there's something else, which is not only have you exploded what you, what you previously believed and you recognize yeah. that that's false, but you've got a very, very clear suggested path to, to what the, the true answer must be. That's right. Without doing one experiment. Not a, not a single one. At least nothing new. Of course, you have you bring background experience from the past, right. but you haven't done anything new. Right. And in fact, if you actually perform an experiment, we get in the way because, as a matter of fact, everything's fall faster right. than light things, <laughs> which right. is an embarrassing fact about the way that God made the world. <laughs> so it's it's it's. But there's, there's an argument for not performing any experiments right there. That's, that's right. That's <laughs> well, my favorite historian of science is uh, a, a French historian, Alexandre Coré. And uh, the usual view of the, of the scientific revolution in the 16th, 17th century is that what happened was people started to actually perform experiments, and, right. okay? And, that and prior to that, people were just armchair philosophers trying to think about how the world worked and so on. Coiré says, no, no, that's got it exactly backwards. That the medievals were out there performing experiments all over the damn place. And that what happened with Galileo is people stopped looking and started thinking. Hmm. That's he, loved, he loved Galileo, and he thought uh, Galileo was a hero because of thought experiments, and he was doing a priori physics. And that's completely the opposite view from the view yeah. which is being taught yeah. and the view which is passed yeah. down in our About schools. About what is good scientific method and all of that stuff. And that's what right. Galileo did. And uh, what Galileo did. Galileo started the scientific revolution, that's and right. this is what the scientific revolution that's right. is. So there are other thought experiments. So this is, this is I know this is your favorite for, uh, and in fact, you, you like it so much that you, you gave it the name platonic, or at least as one of the categories of, uh, of platonic thought experiments. Right. Uh, but um, there are also pure mathematical thought experiments. Uh, so this is, that's very interesting because it gives us an a priori way of, of intuiting the physical world. But we already know the physical world is actually out there. So, I mean, there are questions as to how we gain knowledge of it and how we don't gain knowledge of yep. it. The real question that we're, we're trying to address is how might we better understand or explain this notion of grasping mathematical truths in the mind's eye or, yes. or this, this notion of yes. intuition. And, and you talk about some, uh, some mathematical thought experiments or give some examples of... Uh, visual reasoning. Uh, visual yeah. reasoning of that Examples well. of visual reasoning in mathematics, yeah, right. where it helps. So um, let's take a, um, uh, as an example of this, which I, I've always found an extremely impressive example, is a, a picture proof of a very simple little uh, theorem in number theory. Right. So the theorem is 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 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 up to some number n. Okay. 
that that number, and it can be any number n you like, right. is equal to, um, let, let me express it slightly unusually, but this is equivalent to the normal way, is equivalent to n squared, right, cut in half, yeah. plus n cut in half. n squared, n squared over 2 plus n over 2. So That's a right. Half, a half n squared plus n over yeah. 2. Now, if we look at this picture, this picture, right, that this we're not picture here, to, that nobody else can see. That right. nobody else can see. This picture here, that um, uh, you will see, looking at the very top of the picture, there's one square, and then two squares, and then three squares, four squares, five squares. Right. There it is. Now, if you study that picture for just a moment, look at the form on the right-hand side of the theorem. n squared over 2 plus n over 2. But you can see how the numbers arise, 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5. Right. Now, try to imagine that as half of a whole of a square. So that would be 5 squares on each side. That would give you, well, 25 right. squares overall. Now cut it in half with a diagonal, and you see how that, that part in the diagram corresponds to the first term here, n squared divided right. by it's 2. It's half of that square that you could construct. Exactly. And, and in fact, that we will construct later on when we do all these fancy graphics. <coughs> right. Now, but, but we cut off half of 5 squares right. as, when we drew the diagonal, and we, we need to add them back in. And so that's the second term over here, plus n over 2. Right. It's the half of that little, the, the, those shaded guys, the half of each one of those little little squares on the edge there. Yeah. yeah. So, so the diagram corresponds to the theorem for the special case where n is the number 5. Right. Yeah. But you look at that diagram and you look at how powerful it is because when you see how the diagram works, you get it for all generality. You see that it works not just for 5, but it works for 6, it works for 20, it works for 5 billion, right. it works for every single number n, all right. infinitely many of them. Right. And that's truly remarkable. And I, I don't know exactly what's going on that allows us to, to, um, to see the truth of that theorem from looking at that diagram. But I think it's, it, it seems to me clear. I mean, when you've studied it long enough, you, you become convinced well, of two things. First of all, that it actually is a proof. Yeah. I mean, a real proof. The normal proof for this is by a process called mathematical induction, which everyone ha is happy to accept that. The normal ideology of mathematics is that, you know, stay away from pictures. They can be psychologically helpful, but, but they're they, not evidence. Right. They're not evidence. Not you need a real, a real proof. proof. Yeah, you need a real proof, and a picture isn't a real proof. But when you've studied something like that, when you look at that example, you begin to think, no, no, that's a real proof. That does it. That's just as convincing. It's a, the evidence is every bit as strong in favor of that theorem by that picture make, makes as me a normal proof. Makes me think of what you said earlier about Hardy. You, you just want to point to that yes, picture. Yes, yes, yes. You, you just want to get the yes. sense of, yeah, I can, do, right. I can do it with induction. I can do it this way. I can do it. But there, I've, I've you glimpsed it. You have it. some I've, kind I've of got it right real there. grasp right. of the independent mathematical reality. Right. And it's just words that I can dress it yeah. up or try to convince you if you don't. Th you see, it's over here. It's like this. Yeah. But, but I've got it. I've, I, yeah. I can see that immediately. You can see it. And if you said, oh, I see that it works for 5, but I'm not sure about 13. Yeah. Can you show me 13? <laughs> We'd say, no, no, you haven't got it yet. <laughs> Study the 5 case. And then the light will go on. At some point, the right. light will go on. Right. And, and you see that it works for every single number in. Right. So this isn't, this isn't a, 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 a proof of Platonism in the no. sense that you can't, 
you can't show me, aha, now I've developed a way that I can get access to this, to this world outside of space and time that, that's, been, that's been bothering me as a, as a Platonist. But it, does, it is very suggestive that it gives, uh, it, it gives admittedly, a non-rigorous piece of, of what seems to be evidence or support to, or, or at least characterization of some of the ways that we do have access. You've been able to isolate the, it seems to me, the example of the glimpse. You've been able yeah, to, yeah. to freeze frame somehow this notion of, of, of our moment of access without, okay, understanding exactly glimpse, how it Glimpse is a, is, is a nice, nice term here. You, 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 you somehow or other, you have that, that little bit of perception, that little grasp, that little seeing with the mind's eye. Right. Yeah. So earlier, I stopped you um, when, when you wanted to talk about the, your particular refutation, maybe too strong, or maybe it's not too strong, but your particular solution to this causal theory of knowledge. Oh, right, right. Um, and uh, so now I'd like you, because we're, this is the part of the, of the program where we're talking about your ideas. So, uh, <laughs> so now I'd like you to, uh, to, to give me a sense of, uh, of that. So, so, okay. so again, just briefly before, uh, before you, go, you go on, the causal theory of knowledge is yes, again, there's this land outside of space and time, but it's, because it's outside of space and time, it can't possibly be causally connected, so we can't have any, uh, any knowledge right. of it. Uh, right. So, so it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be able to work. Yeah. So the, uh, yeah, the general claim is you can't know anything unless you're causally connected to it. Right. Right. Okay. So, and then you use physics. Yeah, maybe there's an example. I mean, quantum mechanics is so interesting and bizarre that it, you've, you've almost got a, an example in quantum mechanics that'll solve any problem for you in the rest of the world. Oh yeah, Except you think you're so smart? Well, let me show you this example. Yeah, it doesn't solve the foundations of quantum mechanics. But no, no. That, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, okay, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll work on this one. Okay, so the thing is, if we, could, if we could show that we actually have knowledge in the ordinary physical world, Without a causal connection, mm. that would that would undermine the uh, causal theory of knowledge. Okay, so there are um, quite strange situations, but have been studied now for quite a while in in foundations of physics, and they 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 stem from Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen example. So they imagine well, it's not exactly their example, but a later version of their example. Same idea. Uh, you've got a source here in the middle. And it's going to send out, let's say, a pair of photons to each wing of the experimental apparatus. And this could be several meters apart. And then we'll have something like Polaroid filters here. And we'll orient the filters the same way. And if a uh, photon makes it through here, it will not make it through over there. They're perfectly correlated. Now, uh, from this sort of thing, Einstein said, well, he, he drew the obvious conclusion. Obviously, they're set right at the beginning, that one is coming out uh, oriented this way, and the other photon's coming out oriented that way, and that's why you get this perfect correlation. Now, it may be that if, it may be chancy. This one could come out down, and this the other one would be up, but you'll always get this correlation because it's fixed right at the origin. And the things the, and, and these these spins are there. Even before you look at them. Right? Even that, before that's, you look. That's, that's the idea. Right. The measurements don't create them. And he, had right. a, he gave a, a really brilliant argument for that. Right. And uh, in his day, I would have found that completely persuasive. Um, now, another physicist, John Stuart Bell, 
in the 60s loved this argument, but he, he thought there may be a flaw in it. Anyway, he, what he did was generalize from the straight-up case of the Polaroid filters being oriented the same way, and he said, let's start randomizing them here, you know, put them in different ways, and see what the correlations come out as. And if Einstein is right, then there should be a certain statistical distribution. And so measurements, uh, experiments have been performed, some of them very subtle, and uh, it turns out that Einstein is wrong. It can't be right. Bell suspected it was wrong, and in, in that sense he was confirmed. So there are two things at issue. One is the, the local, it's fixed at, it's fixed, you know, right from the start, mm -hmm. okay? That can't be true if we stick to the other thing. The other thing is that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. That's the other assumption in the argument. So if I'm over here at one wing of the apparatus and I'm rotating this at random, okay, I'll do it when the photons are halfway. And that means that the setting here can't tell the setting over there what the angle of orientation is here. So this one can't respond, saving the correlation statistics, right. by somehow you know, hooking up with the other part of the world. Okay, so two assumptions. There is a way the world is right from the start, and nothing travels faster than the speed of light. And those led to this thing called Bell's inequality, and it's experimentally refuted. That means one of the premises has to go. And the premise that goes, um, for many people, is the, it was fixed at the origin. Okay? That means the following that if you're at one side of the EPR apparatus and you detect the spin is up here, it makes it through the filter, mm -hmm. okay, you can immediately predict what the outcome over here is. You know. You know, you that's know right. Maybe. You know what the outcome over here is. It's right. going to be, it, it will make it through the filter. It'll be what's called spin down. And um, now, but there's no connection. There cannot be any causal connection from one wing of the apparatus to the other unless something can go faster than the speed of light. And if we insist that that can't happen, then you know something about something that's going on in the world and you are not causally connected to it. So this is a counterexample to the causal theory, to of, the knowledge. Causal theory of knowledge. So the causal theory of knowledge that says the only way you can ever know anything is if you're in causal contact with it. And the physicist would say, well, the only way you can be in causal contact with it is if it's in your light cone, if, it, if it's, if it's, yeah. if it's in a, within a distance that, that you don't need to go faster than the speed of light to be, yeah. to be causally connected to That's it. That's right. That's what it means to be causally connected to it according to our understanding of physics. And, and, and so uh, the guys of the, who are proponents of the causal theory of knowledge would say, therefore, Platonism must be false because you've got this platonic world outside of space and time and you can't be causally connected to it. And you say, yeah, but there are things that are happening in the real world that I can know that I'm still not causally connected That's to. That's right. So, so you're in deep trouble. Right. That's right. That's the idea. Now, of course, arguments like this are, as you can imagine, lots of people will be, you know, not, not take them at face value. They'll, 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 they'll challenge them. Uh, a lot of people worry that special relativity is false, that there are actually superluminal connections from one side to the other. That's actually increasingly common. And what has, what has been the response? Um, so 
since you said that, I mean, just, just let me give you for a moment uh, my sense of that. I've always been confused by the people that have said, well, we've got superluminal connections. Because even if you have superluminal connections, you still have, the fact that it's logically possible to have these connections doesn't really help, right, in lots of ways. Because you have That's to have right. all sorts of bizarre, why would anybody, how are they communicating, what are they communicating, how are these photons signaling to one another, and the, you know, the whole, the whole thing is, a, is I mean, it, it almost doesn't even need superluminal impediments to be completely absurd. But, yeah. but, but, um, no, no, but that's a, that's a, that's a, in fact, that's a really good point because I think you could, we, could, we could respond to someone who says, oh, well, look, there might be superluminal connections, so you're causally connected after all. Well, strictly speaking, the causal theory of knowledge says more than you have to be causally connected. It'll also say, and it has to be the right kind of causal connection, yeah. not just anything. Right. Okay. Photons will work because you know they—that's my sense perceptions and so on. Um, but uh, so if it were in the case of of the superluminal connections, if they exist in quantum non-local situations, they're completely uncontrollable. There's no way we can control the data. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You can't send signals with it. Right. That that would suggest that. Um, even if there is a causal connection from one side to the other, it, it wouldn't be the right sort of causal connection hmm. to save the causal theory of knowledge. But it, it, that makes the, the argument more complicated right. and, and so on. Right. So I think, I think the safe thing to say is you should, everyone should be skeptical of the causal theory of knowledge. Right. But whether or not it can be saved from arguments like this is sort of an open question. But there's another thing that, that, that you say as well, which I think is, is worth pointing out. Um, naively, th there is this sense of, well, okay, we have access to this cup because we have a photon coming into our eye and we understand those yeah. uh, processes and we have a, an electronic signal which comes from our optic nerve, you know, to whatever, to parts of our brain and, and, and all the rest of that. And, and, and these are all physiological, they're, they're physical, they're, they may be very complicated, they may be very difficult to isolate, but we understand them more or less in principle, and all that is true, as opposed to this weird stuff of getting into Plato's heaven and these forms, how do we understand that two plus three is five yeah. in, in this world? So that's just hopeless. But you make an interesting point as well when you say, yeah, well, that part we get, but we still don't understand the, the, the physical part we understand and we have a model and we get that, but how the all of this biomechanical stuff that we, we, un we do understand and we have models for, then somehow leads to the psychological belief and the understanding and the conscious awareness yeah. of the fact that there's a cup yeah. on the table. That we, we, actually, when you, we, we actually don't understand at all. We have a name for it. The mind-body problem. <laughs> you put your finger exactly on it. It's, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of years old. You know, how the hell does the mind and the body, how, how do the mind and the body interact with one another? And that's the, that's the problem. In fact, what we know about uh, the perception case is, in fact, it, it, exactly what you said. It, we know about the, the photons entering the uh, eyeball, interacting with the rods and cones, signal down the optic nerve into the visual cortex and so on. But then how belief is formed is a complete and utter mystery. Now, my, I have lots of friends in COGSI, and they would bristle at, the, at my saying it's a complete and utter mystery. They'd say, no, it's not. We, we sort of know a few things. <laughs> but I claim they don't. They don't know a damn thing. And uh, so that means we're actually on a par. Of course, there was never a question about 
That's why I made the joke about platons. There's no right. question about actual right. platons entering the minds. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the thing is, um, the real mystery in the in the in the math case is how do we get our cycle come into these psychological states about having beliefs about right. numbers and so on. Right. But I think it's no more mysterious than in the ordinary physical case. Right. We're both in bad shape. Right. They need to do stuff to figure out what's going on. I need to do stuff to figure out what's going right. on. But I'm not worse off than they are. Right, which is an important distinction. I mean, it's, it's it clearly, it, it's, it's not what you wanted. What you wanted was to show a, a, a concrete proof or demonstration or, or, or existence proof or feasibility or whatever of some of the problems that are, that are bothering you in Platonism. But it is somewhat comforting psychologically to realize that what we think we have a complete understanding of, or what we what what we take on faith, we actually don't understand nearly as well, even in right. the, the cases that we're making a comparison yeah. to. Um, the, there's something we, we probably don't have time for because you give a, a, a quantum, uh, a, a rather a Platonistic interpretation of of quantum theory, um, which is fascinating, and I would urge other people to 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 look at it. But it does bring up a more general case for me, uh, which is that you, you have a natural predilection to look at uh, contemporary or near contemporary issues in theoretical physics and try to somehow harness their power and use them towards, uh, towards some, of these, some of these arguments and some of these right. ideas and some of these concepts. And I wonder how that sits with other members in the philosophical community? Is there the sense of, oh, there's Jim again. He's going off with his EPR experiment, and his, <laughs> his physics, and he's trying, to, he's trying to prove everything in the world through EPR, and, and he's, he's on this particular hobby horse. Is, is that accepted? Is there a sense that, uh, yeah, Brown has really, Brown has really uh, thrown a, a, a deep spike into the heart of the causal theory of knowledge because of his invocation of Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen, and modern physics among many people? Or, or is, that, is that brushed aside as well? He's just playing around with his physics stuff. Well, it, this is, it's kind of a, let me make a more general comment in answer to the question, okay? There's a kind of not entirely happy state of affairs in contemporary philosophy. I mean, the philosophers of science are often you know, quite close to particular sciences. Um, and the mainstream philosophers who do metaphysics and epistemology often are quite divorced from it. And so we, we tend to talk past one another, we, ha we tend to have different problems and so on. So people in mainstream metaphysics and epistemology um, will talk about the nature of time or the nature of causation and so on. But they talk about it in highly abstract terms that usually makes little or no connection with contemporary science. Mm -hmm. For me, that's a, that's a real tragedy. Often, the work that goes on by these people is sometimes unquestionably brilliant. Some of the most brilliant people alive today work in mainstream metaphysics and epistemology. Um, and the people in the philosophy of science are often not, nowhere near as sophisticated when they're, when they're talking about certain kinds of concepts of knowledge or causation and so on. But the thing is, <clears throat> they're usually grounded with real examples of, of what, I've, what in an ordinary sense I, call, I would call knowledge. I mean, if there's anything we're sure about, it's the, it's the sciences have given us knowledge. I, I don't want to say that I'm sure it's knowledge that in the sense that we might overthrow it tomorrow. So it, let me say it's justified belief. 
We have wonderful justified beliefs given to us by physics and biology and so on. Um, and mainstream metaphysics and epistemology tends to talk about highly artificial examples, mm -hmm. which just don't connect up. So we, we pass one another. It's and a different it's language. A bit of a pity. It's a, it's a different, different language, different concerns. Sometimes, um, 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 I mean, I'll mention something, well, what about this? And they'll say, well, yeah, that's very interesting, uh, but uh, I don't have to worry about that because I'm working at a different level or <laughs> whatever. It, it's, it can be frustrating. Both yeah. sides are a bit frustrated. I mean, a charitable way of reading this non-interaction is a bit like many pure mathematicians and many physicists. They just tend to talk past one another. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some really good stuff where they overlap. Mm -hmm. And that's really highly fruitful, and I really like that stuff. And, and, and by analogy, if we can get more people in uh, philosophy of science to interact with people in mainstream philosophy then, and use some of their highly sophisticated, but so far not applicable notions, but somehow or other make them you know, work in, in, in philosophy of science. I think we'd be better off. Is it going and they would be a hell of a lot better off if they paid more attention to real examples. Is it going in that direction, or is it, or is, no. or is it going in the other direction? Is it, is it widening the gulf between the two, the two sides? I don't know if it's widening, but it's not narrowing. Okay. Yeah, we, we're, we're not talking past one another. How wide the gulf is, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's too wide as it is, whatever it is. In terms of the people who do speak your language, and mm. in terms of the people who are at least prone to be influenced to some extent mm. by your writings and, uh. your, and your thoughts and so forth, have you had much in the way of impact? You've been talking about these ideas and developing these ideas and being quite consistent for quite a long time with uh, whether it's through thought experiments or, or whether it's through general philosophy of math or, or, or philosophy of physics and philosophy of science. And, and this is not, this is all of a piece of, of the work that you've been doing for, for quite a long time now. Have you found that you're Gaining ground, as it were, are you gaining, gaining converts? <laughs> winning, you? <laughs> winning converts, no. I, if I thought of myself as being useful, it's like this. I have a, a very good friend, a, a colleague, uh, who works on thought experiments too. His name is John Norton. And he holds a completely different view than I do. And uh, he's sort of an extreme empiricist, and so I'm an extreme Platonist rationalist. Yeah. And uh, nobody believes him, and nobody believes me. <laughs> But we're both incredibly useful to the community <laughs> because many articles on thought experiments will start out and say, well, are these fruitcake views? <laughs> and I'm going to tell you they're wrong, of course, and I'm going to do something sensible in between. <laughs> so we're, we're, we're useful foils. You're markers. You're, you're yes. setting the terrain. That's it? right. <laughs> Here are the boundaries of ludicrousness, <laughs> and I'll do something sensible in between. So have you always been at this bound, this this uh, at this lunatic, lunacy, lunatic fringe? Have you always been on the on the boundaries? Have you were you a Platonist as long as you can remember? Did to you be a Platonist, Platonist in physics is to be is to be considered close to the lunatic fringe. Yes, in mathematics, not so. In mathematics, Platonism is is well as you know, working mathematicians right. are are Platonists and they have a lot of sympathy for it. Uh, and philosophers of mathematics, a big chunk of them are. Platonist. Maybe they'll try to qualify it a little, but it's it's considered a perfectly respectable view. Uh, my views are slightly um, unusual inside the philosophy of mathematics community, not so much for being a Platonist, but for taking pictures so seriously 
and to mm. and the emphasis on visual reasoning. But I notice that there's a lot more people working on visual reasoning now. It's coming into uh, okay. So you have kind of fashion. Some, some I don't know. It may be oh, just oh, a coincidence okay, that, that, so that people are doing that you fit. it. It's becoming more fashionable. I yeah. Say. Um, and and in terms of your particular Platonistic evolution, I've said ever since I've known you, you've yeah. been fairly consistent, and this is this goes back I don't know twenty years or, or so that. that yeah, I'm afraid. 20, I'm afraid. <laughs> wait, wait, sorry. But it's been a while. Um, and uh, so were you, did you have a, a Platonistic epiphany when you were three years old, playing with pebbles on a beach or something, and saying, no, nah, this abstraction thing must be garbage, pebble one, pebble two, but no, it must be up there somewhere. Do you remember the, 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 the first time you became aware of your, your, your Platonistic resolve, as it were? I certainly remember the first time I fell in love with thought experiments. Okay. I can, so tell me you know, I can pinpoint that. In the math case, I think I sort of got interested in math as an undergrad, seriously interested in math as an undergraduate. And then in thinking about these issues, Platonism just seemed like natural the natural step. thing. And I just sort of fell into it. Okay. Um, in the thought experiments case, uh, I was uh, just a beginning philosophy student, probably in the first year, maybe second. And um, like every philosophy student, I took the, the standard sort of introduction where you, you read some rationalist philosopher, a bit of Plato, maybe a bit of Descartes, uh, and they think that you can have a priori knowledge of the world. And then, and then that's usually taught in a philosophy course, only it's set up to just knock it down. And then you read the, the empiricist, right. and you read Hume. Right, and so right. Hume's wonderful and, and all of that. And I'm reading this, and I thought, well, Hume's very interesting, sort of, but, uh, oh, he's, he can't hold a patch. He's not going <laughs> to a patch on Descartes and, and, and Plato. But, of course, sadly, I'm sure empiricism is the truth. What a pity, you know? And then uh, somebody, uh, one of my teachers, in fact, just in an offhanded way, he wasn't, he wasn't trying to get us interested in thought experiments. He was talking about something else. He said, oh, and then Galileo did this. And he gave me that example. Right, of the falling and balls. And the, the falling balls. And I just, I was stupefied. I'd never seen anything so dazzling and beautiful in all my life. It was the most, you know, every now and then you have an intellectual experience where the light goes on. This was like the sun. Just, <laughs> just I was face to face with the sun. I'd never seen anything so spectacular in my life. And it just knocked the tar out of Hume right there. That's it. That was, I don't have to be an empiricist. I can be with my heroes, Descartes and Plato. You really can know stuff just by thinking. So let me ask one more question for you. I've asked you this before. Uh, I can't remember what you, what you said to me. So I'm going to ask it again. Okay. And, and if you change your, your response, I won't know. You won't know. <laughs> Is there anything, uh, let, me, let, me, let me give a little bit of a, of a preface to it. Yeah. So, so one would say if you're going to be really scientific and make progress, at least if you're within a yeah. scientific faculty, you, there's this sense of, of the willingness to recognize, the potential willingness to recognize that you've erred. This notion of falsifiability. Oh, sure. oh, yeah. This notion that, well, there could be something that comes along, I believe <clears throat> this, but if something were to come along tomorrow, then, uh, then I would change my mind. Yeah. So what would come along tomorrow for you? What conceivably could come along tomorrow that you would say, well, Platonism seemed completely reasonable to me for a very long time, but I no longer believe it. It's just not, it's just not true. Is there anything that one could conceive of, that you could conceive of, 
that would that would lead to you changing your 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 view on Platonism? Well, this would this have to be pretty vague, I'm afraid. Sure. Um, if you could show me that uh, Platonism as a philosophical doctrine was actually getting in the way of further mathematical developments, if it was sort of constraining mathematicians from doing certain kinds of things, then I'd have serious worries about it. Um, I hope I'm not dogmatic about it, but I may well be. But I, there are lots of things that count as certain in life, including most of mathematics, that I'm, I'm not prepared to, to, to claim are certain, in fact, uh, at all. So, for instance, I think mathematics is highly fallible, mm -hmm. and that while it's been pretty stable, there are actually changes in uh, the history of mathematics that have been rather revolutionary. So a couple hundred years ago, uh, here was a theorem. Every function is continuous. Certainly nobody would believe that today. Right. It's, because, it's not because somebody made a, a mistake in the proof. It's rather we have reconceptualized the idea of a function, what counts as a function. And it was fruitful for mathematics to, to change that definition and allow things to develop in a, in a kind of different way. It was too constraining, the prior definition, which really amounted to, you know, a function is either a polynomial or one of right. the trig functions. And they're all continuous, of course. Right. Right. But, um, but you want something more general than that. And so, in that sense, a piece of mathematics, all a theorem, all functions are continuous, is now garbage. It's just historical, it's wrong. Sure. It's part of the history of mathematics, but we don't believe it. And if I thought that, mathem that Platonism were somehow or other as convinced as I am of it, um, if I thought it were wrong, I would probably, you know, abandon it. But, no, but ha, it just occurred to me, I actually have a second ideology. Oh, you do? Yes. And that is, I don't think of myself uh, I, I, the way I think of science as going is not a bunch of individuals trying to figure things out. I think of it as very much a community trying to figure things out. Mm -hmm. It is therefore very useful to have a variety of views. So even if I thought, oh, no, my Platonism is probably pretty stupid. But the thing is, if there's nobody else working on it, oh, we're only on. very small. I see. Now, now I've lost all respect for you after all this time. But you're, you're, you're I did. I remember <laughs> that. You did ask me this question before. I gave you the same answer, and you hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so you're saying that you would, you would willfully be a hypocrite? No, no, you, not a hypocrite. You, not a hypocrite. I couldn't, I couldn't work on it if I thought it was flat out false. Right. But I could work on it if I thought, hmm, it's a contender, and these other views are contenders, maybe even slightly more plausible than mine. But I want to be a good team player. And but and would you would you come come clean with this? Would you say exactly what you're saying? Or oh would yeah. You, or would you pretend to somehow believe that yours was still the leading contender if you thought that others were, were 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 better contenders? Because of course, if you say if you start off saying, well, I'm going to defend this view, but I think that others are are maybe even a stronger contenders, yeah. then you're minimizing your your opportunity to contribute to the to the greater welfare and to the team, aren't you? Well, no, it can be very useful to have, as I say... I'm not going to take you seriously. If you stand up and you say, I believe, I believe in this view, that's nah, probably not the strongest view. Actually, actually it's, it's known to be false. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm, on the, I'm on the program no in this nice city in Europe. Right, exactly. And <laughs> thanks I'm gonna, to my ludicrous I'm going to represent it because no one else will. You know, oh, yeah, well, that's, I'm going to listen to this guy. Uh, well, yeah, okay, fair enough. It, it may be a problem for the individuals who take that view, but you probably support that way of funding science. You know, even the U.S. Pentagon 
they don't anymore, but, I, but they used to fund uh, uh, ESP research. Not because they believed it was true, but the Russians were doing it. And they thought, and they thought there is a, an incredible, it's just a, an, an infinitesimal chance that it could be right and that people with the appropriate thought processes might change the trajectories of intercontinental ballistic missiles right. and turn our rockets back upon ourselves. We want to be there first. So this is some kind of portfolio theory argument. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it is. Yeah. So stick, so, so again, I'm... But anyway, so, look, look, so, so the I'm happy news... I'm, I'm disappointed. The happy, <laughs> the happy news is that I'm rock solid on this one. Right. Okay? Okay. I'm well, right and the rest of them are wrong. Well, that, that, that's perfect. And bef before I let you go, because uh, I'm much happier when you say this, and, and before I let you go, you... you 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 said uh, you said before that you you hoped you weren't dogmatic, and, and I'm not sure. In all honesty, I'm not sure what that means. I mean, to me, being dogmatic means you were unwilling to listen to reason. You were mm. unwilling to mm. to countenance the possibility that you might be wrong, mm. and that you were unwilling to engage in a in a discussion in an analytical discussion yeah. that 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 could support your views and could in potentially lead to their downfall. Yeah. That, that doesn't strike me as, as, as your attitude, nor... nor no, I'm, not, I, I, I'm happy to say I'm not dogmatic in that sense. Uh, maybe, I sh maybe there's another sense, sort of, in spite of apparent goodwill, nevertheless blind to seeing things that others, in fact, could see. Let me parse this, because I haven't... Um, okay. I just, I just mean... Um, sort of set in my ways in such a way that uh, you could give me a terrific argument against me, but somehow or other I'm just, I try, I might try, but I'm psychologically incapable of. But you can't be held responsible if you're psychologically incapable for it, can you? No, probably not. Well, I don't know. We might be able to think of examples. <laughs> like okay. 19th century men couldn't hear women. Uh, now, you could say they were just trained you know, in that society, they were just deaf to a, woman, a woman's uh, point of view. Um, and the same idea coming out of a, another man's mouth, they could... Countenance. They, they yeah. And so, all right, were they responsible? Well, of course, they're raised that way. It's really hard to change. But on the other hand, maybe we're all responsible for, you know, making sure when we think there might be some impediment to how we're uh, uh, listening to other people to make some effort to try and see things their way. It well, may I, take work. It may take a kind of work that we're not used to. And that it's even painful. I mean, it's hard work. Sure. Yeah. That's uh, all I mean. Okay. Uh, fair enough. And, and, but I, I've, always, I've always held you up as the epitome of tolerance because you're, uh, you're, you're, you've had a, a long and, and happy marriage to someone who, who openly disavows <laughs> your, your views of this respect. And you, you've even dedicated a book to Kathleen who doesn't believe a word of it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I, it seems to me that you have a very good perspective on the, on the whole business, both mm -hmm. uh, intellectually and academically and personally. Um, one final question, or maybe even a meta question, which is, is there anything that we haven't talked about with respect to Platonism and your views and its potential uh, for for world domination or anything like that, <laughs> that 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 we sh that we should that we should discuss. Have I left anything out? I'm sure we've left a million things out, but um, 
life is short. And okay. Well, thanks. It's been, it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. It's been an enormous pleasure Thank for you. me, Howard. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Philosophy, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with Patricia Churchland, Charles Foster, Alfred Mealy, and Scott Soames. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.